We're back. It is a delight always to be able to say when we are joined by Colonel Grant Newsom that we have retired United States Marine Corps Colonel, a former Foreign Service officer, a very successful businessman in Asia, and one of our country's duty experts on what is happening in that part of the world, and in addition, a senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy in the House, at least virtually. That is the case at the moment, and I couldn't be more pleased. Grant Newsom, thank you for joining us. Um, Thank you for making yourself available uh, on a day that has proven a little difficult to connect properly with you, and I'm very, very grateful indeed, as there's a lot we want to talk with you about. Sure, glad to be here. Thanks a lot. So I think the thing to pick up on is a theme that I was discussing a moment ago with Ruben Johnson about the developments involving uh, Russian threats to Ukraine. And that is, are the Chinese similarly comforted, indeed perhaps emboldened by the seeming fecklessness of the United States, uh, notably under the Biden administration in Afghanistan, but more generally in terms of uh, the kinds of evidence of uh, resolve and commitment to stand with other freedom-loving peoples, including those of Taiwan at the moment? Oh, the Chinese are definitely, I think, encouraged uh, by what they see. Make no mistake, they are watching closely. And as you've noted, it is that that appearance of American confusion, uh, sort of America just sort of lost its mind almost, and and America facing uh, just different challenges around the world and seeming to uh, not really have a strategy for it. Uh, but rather a more ad hoc approach to things, and the preference, it seems, for diplomacy and dialogue. Uh, I think the Chinese, like the Russians, and like anyone, uh, can smell weakness. And they're watching what's going on with Ukraine uh, very closely, obviously, for their own uh, particular uh, region, which Taiwan is the big thing. But okay, but the, the larger, of course, the, the Chinese have broader ambitions than just Taiwan. But for now, they're, I think they are ca- trying to calibrate and calculate uh, just how capable America is of uh, responding if China does something. Now, at the moment, of course, there are not one but two U.S. Navy carrier strike groups in the South China Sea. How do you think the Chinese are perceiving that presence and what it might speak to in terms of um, American resolve and commitment to Taiwan or the region more generally? Well, I think the Chinese would see it for what it is. It's a, a very, it is a very capable military force, but it's also temporary. Uh, they will be there for some period of time and then they'll go away. And once the carriers have gone, then the Chinese will once again have the really the military sort of dominance uh, in that immediate region. The Americans will have whatever they've got uh, left in the region, say based up in Japan, or whatever happens to be there. But this this uh, kind of compilation of bringing together uh, this very large naval force of a couple carriers and some amphib ships and destroyers, etc., by the Americans is a temporary show. 
really. And that's the advantage the Chinese have. And that's how they look at it, is they you know, will bide their time and wait for the Americans to go away. Uh, so, you know, they, they recognize the threat but to them, but they also know it won't be there forever. And it takes place in the context of a, an increasingly uh, powerful Chinese military that is developing both in terms of hardware and capability. Uh, so if you play this out over time, uh, the Americans will they may be here now, but they're not there uh, forever. They'll be going uh, back home uh, before too long. This makes all the more important, of course, the relationships between other nations that live in the neighborhood. Talk a little bit, if you would, about a new agreement between the Japanese and the Australians and how that may factor into, well, uh, deterrence considerations for China? Well, sure. What we're seeing, of course, is more evidence that the Americans themselves cannot sort of hold the line in Asia. They've got to have partners and allies to, to help them. And this has to be a very, actually a, a genuinely capable alliance, uh, So, that, which means that the militaries of their America's partners have to be both powerful in their own right, but also able to operate with the Americans. But back to the Japanese and the Australians. Well, the Japanese are the, the one force that America has to have if it's to succeed in Asia. Uh, and so what the Japanese have done is they have uh, set up a, a reached an agreement recently with the Australians that makes it easier for both Japanese and Australian troops to train together or train in each other's countries or to operate in their respective nations. And this is, it de now it depends on what they make of it. You know, do, will we now see the Japanese uh, doing some more complex, more serious training in Australia with the Australians and with the Amer Americans down there too? Uh, and will the Australians be operating up in Japan? So this has the potential to improve Japanese capabilities, Australian capabilities, but there's also a political and psychological aspect to it. Because just a few years ago, Japan would 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 never have reached this kind of agreement. Its only partner was the Americans, and that was that. And now they are reaching out uh, to the, the Australians with this, uh, it is a substantial agreement, uh, which shows just how the Japanese have changed their thinking. They have to do a lot more to improve their military capabilities. Uh, but politically, Japan understands the Chinese threat and they want to uh, protect themselves. And that requires them to get closer to the Americans, to the Australians. Uh, the Japanese have also uh, tried to set up relationships uh, with the British uh, with the French and a few other place, countries as well. So we're seeing a, a Japan which, uh, compared to, say, 10 years ago, is practically unrecognizable in what it is doing defense-wise. But as I said, it has a long way to go. And America needs to have its partners sort of up their games. And so this Australia-Japan agreement, is it's a nice step forward. It's not the end, but it, it's a good sign of progress. And in terms of really upping their game, uh, Colonel Newsom, you've um, been interviewed, I believe, for the Sunday Guardian Live about some specific steps that uh, ought to be taken. Um, give us just a sense of what they entail and um, how likely they are under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. well, what I was uh, talking about in that interview with the Sunday Guardian, uh, it had to do with the American presence in the region. Uh, because, And what I was pointing out is that 
while we do have sort of say combat capability, and we've just we've just talked about that, say with the two carriers, uh, and the Marines are, for example, are trying to implement a new strategy in Asia where they split up into these small units all over the place. But what I'm pointing out is that while America may have combat capability of a sort, uh, it doesn't have the the places to put this combat capability, nor the relationships that you need to have countries welcome you in. So that's, to put it mildly, a small problem. Uh, and we simply have not paid the attention that we need to, uh, to the Pacific Islands, for, uh, for example, and for Southeast Asia, Southwest Pacific. Uh, and as a result, we don't, you know, we say we have friends, but nobody will actually let us come and set up and conduct operations. So that is an absolute failure on the part of administrations going back a long ways. The Trump administration understood the problem and tried to do something about it. But as I said, this goes back 20 years that instead of laying the groundwork, the debate of these, this network of friendly nations that would allow the Americans to operate from their territory, uh, we just ignored it. And now we uh, are trying to catch up. And I'm not even sure that this administration uh, really recognizes the problem or is doing uh, what's necessary. Yeah, or and really wants to catch up, about. as the case may be. You know, um, among you these wonder. islands that, that you're talking about, Grant, just to put some s- specifics on the table, um, the Solomon Islands, um, as you've mentioned, have had a lot of turmoil of late, and we've not been much in evidence in trying to have that come out right. Uh, the Chinese have been there and uh, obviously have it in mind that it comes out wrong from our perspective. Um, Tonga, a country that has been uh, badly damaged by this uh, underwater volcano, um, is another place that I think you're asking, why aren't we there? Uh, just talk us through you know, the importance of being there uh, in peacetime if you want to have their help uh, in more difficult moments. Sure. Well, there's a sort of logic to that, that if you want people to like you and to help you, that it helps to pay attention to them uh, when you, other than when you absolutely need them when you're in trouble. And that requires you to Especially be Especially when they and, need you, arguably. Well, that's right. You know, if you're, not, if you're not there, you're really not interested, no matter what you say. And you've mentioned the Solomon Islands. And what's happened down there is that the, the Chinese have really made some inroads there. And they recently had the, the switch to recognition from Taiwan to China. So the Chinese have made inroads in the Solomon Islands. They've made inroads in Tonga. And the inroads, they start commercial. And then it turns into political influence. And you, then they create a pro-Chinese faction within the local society that sees themselves as benefiting from the ties with the PRC and, by definition, not having ties with the Americans. So in practically every uh, island in the Pacific, that that is what the Chinese have successfully done. But you would think, well, that's okay. The American uh, embassy is taking care of these things. And, well, the thing is, they're not. America doesn't have an embassy in Tonga, doesn't have one in the Solomon Islands, doesn't have one in Kiribati, which is the old Tarawa, 
people might recognize. And as a result, the Chinese have had this vacuum in which to operate without the Americans there to uh, really present a, a counterweight or an alternative for the locals who don't want the Chinese there. America says, well, we've left it up to the, the Australians and the New Zealands to take care of it. But that outsourcing your responsibilities isn't what a great power does. So we're losing the political warfare path. Well, especially if the people that you're contracting it out to don't actually measure up either. And and Grant, just to put this in context, we're, we're talking about uh, potential flashpoints uh, in which this war for the free world may go kinetic. And one of them obviously is Taiwan. And uh, the Chinese, of course, have been ratcheting up their pressure on Taiwan again. Um, these uh, flights um, are larger in number and uh, more and more threatening in character. And more and worse is uh, being promised by the Chinese if the Taiwanese secessionists, as they call them, um, don't uh, relent. And when you talk about the region, when you talk about our alliances, when you talk about missed opportunities and vacuums that are being filled by the Chinese, how do you net all this out in terms of the prospect of the Chinese, presumably after the Olympics, doing what they have long threatened to do? Um, they may not prefer to do it, but they seem increasingly prepared to actually engage in um, military invasion of Taiwan to uh, secure it once and for all for China. Yeah, that, that's a tough one to answer, and I'm not sure anyone quite knows the, the, the you know what's going to happen. If I had to guess, uh, that I think China likes the way things are developing in the region, and I. As I mentioned, their political warfare efforts in the in the Pacific, uh, in Southeast Asia, and in Latin America as well have been very successful. So there is a ten. It, one might suggest that the the Chinese would let this play out for a bit longer, uh, and that would improve their uh, really their prospects. And if they so, if I had to guess, I would say that they probably would not launch an all-out attack on Taiwan in 2022. Uh, well, that would be my guess. Somewhat heartening. But I think. Yeah. But I think they will do something uh, that tries to, that humiliates the Americans, that makes it clear that the Americans cannot react, will not react, and thus demoralizing the people in the, the region that are counting on the Americans. What could that look like? Uh, pressure on, say, some of Taiwan's uh, offshore islands, interrupt uh, shipping and aircraft going in or even taking one. Uh, and you know that on the U.S. side, there's going to be a big constituency in the in Wall Street, in the business class, which says, don't do anything. It's not worth risking war. So, But at the same time, they will have thoroughly humiliated the United States, demonstrated that this administration is confused uh, and is weak and unreliable. That, as an so ally. that's how. So that's how I would tend to to look at it. Um, but you just never know. You know, the Chinese uh, will surprise you sometimes, and their capability for shooting themselves in the foot is is immense. But they also just may see that America is in such straits that it's time to go. The and temptation is I would, irresistible, as they so, say. So that's. If I, that's how I would look at it. You know, it's um, a lot depends on how the American the American administration performs, and but that would be my guess. Is that's very very important. Uh, you know, to continue refining our expectations and understandings of uh, 
of Chinese intentions as best we can. Um, Grant, let me ask you one question that uh, sort of relates to something you touched on a moment ago, namely American elites working in effect on behalf of China in a number of respects. Um, this is the subject of a new book by our friend Peter Schweitzer called Red-Handed, How America's Elites Get Rich Helping China. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. I confess I have not. I've heard him give a couple of terrific interviews um, and uh, I'm hoping to get him on here soon. But uh, you're familiar, of course, with the content of his information, I'm sure. And that is that uh, financiers, high-tech, other business leaders in the United States, um, academics, you know, the Hollywood cultural mavens, and not least politicians have succumbed in considerable numbers to Chinese uh, bribes or commercial arrangements of other kinds that uh, effectively have compromised them and made them into uh, what the Chinese have called old friends of China who can be relied upon to try to advance its interests even where they conflict with our own. From your vantage point in the Far East and Japan most of the time, I'm sure you see evidence of this and the implications of it for deterring the Chinese or otherwise, you know, minimizing the chances that they will behave badly. Um, if they think they own us, or at least our elites, including the president of the United States, for heaven's sakes. Um, how is that factoring into their calculations, do you think? And, um, and therefore, perhaps into your prediction? Well, I think it's a huge part of Chinese uh, sort of calculation is that, and it's not just the United States. If you go into any country of consequence, and even most countries not of consequence, the Chinese have successfully bought off the a good chunk of the ruling elite, and it's ultimately cash or the the prospect of it. And it, you really can't over uh, overstate just how effective they have been at this. And that's you know in throughout Asia, go from one end to the other, and you have got a pro Chinese constituency in the elite classes, the business classes, the political classes, just like. Uh, in the United States. And, and Peter Schweitz is very good, um, familiar with his other, other work. And that, if you look at from China's perspective, that's exactly what you want, is you want somebody in your adversary's country and someone of importance, or a group of people of importance, who will counsel uh, appeasement, say, don't respond, who will effectively do China's bidding when China presses. And that's what we face now. And it's if you took those people away, China would be in would, would have nowhere near the, the capacity that they have today. But just one point, all the funds of the hundreds of billions that go into China every year, this papers over what is a, a very bad economy. Uh, and, but it you know, looks successful because the Americans are funding it and making up the difference. Uh, so, you know, this is a, a huge part of China's strategy, the subversion of your opponents. And to have your opponents actually think what they're doing is is the sensible thing, is the, the nuanced thing, that, you know, that's exactly what you want. You, you will literally win without fighting 
And if you do have to fight, it's going to be a lot easier for you. The rise of China, I think these elites have often indicated that they think that's their job now is to manage the rise of China and concomitantly to manage the decline of their own countries. This one most immediately, obviously. Um, How do you see that coming about? Grant, uh, are, are the Chinese successfully making this transition in your estimation and th- that of people in the region, do you think? And is uh, is it approaching the point where they believe that the, uh, the resistance is useless and it's, um, it's necessary at this point to simply um, make the best a separate piece, if you will, that you can. I'm talking here about, of course, uh, nations in the region, some of whom have been long allied with us. So it's not quite there yet, but if something happens, but everyone is looking to the United States, sort of hoping the Americans will somehow get their act together and fend off the Chinese, present an, prevent, uh, present an alternative to Chinese domination. Uh, but most of these countries are not doing what they need to do to build up their own defenses. They are perhaps over-reliant on Americans. So it'd be nice if they did more. But I think what you're going to see is if China can pull off some event which, as I said, humiliates the Americans, shows the Americans are weak, confused, and that China is the dominant military in the immediate region, that I think at that point you're going to see other countries be more active in cutting a deal with China, uh, hoping to be left alone. But look for some event that, as I said, humiliates the Americans. Think Afghanistan, uh, Ukraine. You know, that's not making this administration look particularly good. And, you know, so say watch for that in Asia. And I think that's what you can see a lot of countries sort of um, adjust off of that. I think Japan is very unlikely to do that. And unless they really have no choice. And the Australians, at least under the current government, probably wouldn't either. But beyond that, uh, I think most of Asia would probably turn pink pretty quickly. Not the Indians either, uh, but there's a lot of other countries. Pink if not red, alas. A warning to us all. And as you mentioned, Grant Newsom, um, the problem is that uh, it may not even require the Chinese to humiliate us. Uh, the Biden team seems to be doing a pretty good job of that all by themselves, alas. Yeah, well, the, the Bush administration did a pretty good job of well, it, too. Well, yeah, there's, there's blame to go around. I think you're so right. So it's a bipartisan achievement. It is. A distinction. A dubious distinction of an achievement. Yeah. Yeah, I think they did, yeah. by and large. Thank you so much, Grant Newsom, for your time today and, again, for bearing with us as we pulled this uh, interview together. It's so appreciated, as is the work you do with us at the Center for Security Policy. Thank you. I hope you will keep it up and come back to us again very soon. Hope the rest of you will do the same again tomorrow, same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Gaffney. Thanks for listening.